Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host for this episode. My name is Kevin Estella, and I'm joined by Jordan Jonas. Now, unless you guys have been living under a rock, which is very possible if your name is Roland Welker or one of the other contestants on Alone, uh, you probably are aware of this hit television show, which has been on the History Channel now for multiple seasons. And this gentleman who joins me on the podcast today is one of those guys who, as I was watching the show based on my background, I was like, damn, this guy is doing it right. Wow. He's impressive. Holy crap. He, he's doing it so well. So with that being said, uh, over the years, people have said, well, who would you like to have on the podcast? And I'm like, I'd love to get Jordan Jonas at some point. And people have said, well, why don't you do the show? And I've, I've given my reasons and I'm like, well, I'd have to go up and, and, you know, he set the bar extremely high. Um, but uh, I am, I'm so excited to have him on the podcast because I was very, very impressed. And, you know, I've met multiple contestants from the show. And, you know, Nicola Pellian has a recommendation for my book on the back cover of the book. Um, you know, and I've met a, a bunch of folks that I've been very impressed with. But this guy, you know, among these giants, he's the cream of the crop. So, Try not to inflate his head too much. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I am so happy to have you on, man. Well, yeah, thanks, Kevin. It's an honor, and thanks for the good words. Uh, yeah, an honor to be invited on. And from uh, hearing good words from someone like yourself means a lot, so thanks. Well, I, I truly mean it. You really did impress me from the moment I, I watched you on the show, and they said that you lived with nomadic uh, people of Scandinavia, I think it was the Avenki tribe, um, you know, and then you have all this experience just traveling and not necessarily uh, experiencing it like a tourist, but experiencing it as a traveler and a participant in culture. So I was like, this guy's mm -hmm. doing it right. Um, and, and honestly, like in my circle of friends of all the guys who watch the show and we chat back and forth, um, everyone was like, this guy is doing it and it's like not even breaking a sweat so so let's let's talk yeah yeah right um so let's talk about this experience and i want to talk about what you're doing now and, and kind of like your background so first off how did you get the the inkling how did you get the 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 bug to do alone well, that's a, that in and of itself is a long story. I'm sure we'll get into it as, as we chat. But um, I, the the short version of it is it was after season one or two was just coming out. Uh, my buddy had seen the show and was like, hey, we should, you should watch a show. We should apply. And uh, of course, at that time, I had been spent a lot of years living with the natives over there in Siberia. So it was kind of right up my alley. And I, so I watched the show and uh, I was like, that actually is a pretty cool show. And to be really honest, the the whole reason I applied is because when I watched it, you know, in those early seasons, you'd see a lot of bear <laughs> and nobody was hunting the bear as it seemed, you know, I don't know. It's always what you see or what you don't see, but I just thought, man, I've got to get on there and try to hunt a bear. So I really, I just sent him a quick, uh, link to my youtube videos that had been living with the natives over there in russia and i uh kind of forgot about it and then i was too late for season three and season four was team season five was returnees so it wasn't until three years later i was just out working a job like working on this uh building the driveway and i got a call from alone and they're like hey 
is alone uh, we casted for season six and we'd love to have you on and i was just like what like i had to oh man i gotta <laughs> I gotta go bro, catch up on the show and i don't know it's just some, an opportunity i couldn't say no to uh yeah so the doors opened and just kept going through them and found myself out there uh it was clearly a really unique opportunity to use the the skills i had acquired um you know i had always just earned money in the states gone to russia you know lived there for a year at a time then come back earn more money i never thought of it as being a financial opportunity but it really was that on a loan i didn't particularly go on to prove myself or anything like that i was just like man what a unique opportunity to try to you know buy myself a lot of time with the family while the kids are young so that's what i took it as <laughs> now when you were overseas and you were living with these different people i i mm-hmm. to, to continue with this origin story how did you get mm-hmm. linked up with these tribes like it's not yeah, like I, I mean like you think about it like a tribe is usually very guarded of its ways or very right. protective of, of of their people to the outside world and then you just walk in and i'm sure the process is more complicated but how did you get linked up with them to yeah, learn well, these skills what was great is it happened really organically so i went to russia initially i was helping this guy you know there's some guy over there that was building the orphanage and he was an american missionary guy and i just went to help out long story short but then when i got there i was like man i really want to live with russians and really learn the culture here and so i asked him if he knew anyone i could live with and he sent me to a neighboring village and i lived with just a couple different russian families fully immersed in this in this russian village you know we'd milk cows every morning and cut hay with a sigh and just old school village life but the, the guys that i had lived with in that village had both been to prison and had been to prison with a native fur trapper from the north and so over the years as i got to know these guys really well and earned their trust my one buddy was always like man you gotta go up north and meet my you know fur trapping friend and eventually that gay guy came through to sell furs in the city and then invited me to go live with them and uh i was able to do that so i went up there and i don't know if you've ever seen that there's a documentary called happy people oh um, yeah yeah so that was actually filmed not far at all from where i was and the fur trapper i lived with knew the guys on the on that film so it was basically that lifestyle and and it was awesome, you know, I loved it. I went out and spent a good year living with that fur trapper in the woods and trapping and he was showing me the ropes of all that. And then, you know, he, after, he, after I kind of earned his trust too, uh, all his, he's half native and all his cousins are still nomadic reindeer herder folks. And so at one point he's like, hey, I'm gonna take you out to the village. So you take this helicopter to some remote native village land there there's no roads there or anything and then from there we at the time it was still winter we hopped on a snowmobile old soviet thing and rode out to this teepee and he basically dropped me off at his cousin he's like hey this is jordan he's awesome hey this is andre he's great like there you go see you later and so he <laughs> dropped me off at a teepee with his cousins and to be really honest, I'd seen a, a documentary about Avenki, but I didn't actually know people really lived like that until I basically met him. And, in, you know, and of course I'd heard about him prior living in, uh, with Yura and stuff, but 
it was fat it just fascinated me their way of life and uh, I just kept going back and it's been you know it's been six months a year however much I could get and and ended up living them with them for several years so. Mm-hmm. so one of the things that the group of friends and I had was a weekly discussion about the show and along comes this moment where on the show, you're like, I need to get some food in my diet. I need to get some fat in my diet. I've had all this lean meat from, from the moose. And I'm thinking like, wow, you've got a 900 pound animal just, just hanging there, you know, (laughs) but now you're going through that food boredom and you're like, I just need to get some, I need to get some trout in me, something with fat. So you end up making a net, which I've seen in theory, but I haven't seen it in practice where you actually use like a crawling device under the ice and you string the net under the ice and, and pull in this ridiculous size lake trout and all my buddies and I, we all sent messages to each other in the moment it aired. We're like, this guy's unbelievable. Like, so can you kind of explain that process of, of making that net, maybe where you learned that process and then, uh, kind of explain like the, the sensation you had when, when you found out that you had something in the net. Yeah. So it was, uh, that was a really big moment for me on the show because, uh, kind of as the time goes you know you get there and you have september and i've been really successful snaring and hunting and i basically made this huge collection of food from and fishing too you know so i had this now you say 900 pound moose and 30 rabbits or whatever and uh a pile of fish and all this stuff but you get to november and you have to wait for the ice up on the lake and so you can't really fish well the I'd already filled my moose tag. The bears are down to hibernate. And so you're basically, I was staring at the fact that it's going to be a real slow November and I'm going to be taking from my food cash rather than adding to it, which is uh, not fun. And so (laughs) in that downtime, while I waited for the ice up, I just built a fishing net and, and, and it was pretty tedious to be honest. I was, it was, cold out so your hands get cold i put hot rocks in my pockets and i'd warm them and then weave as long as i could until my hands were cold and then do that and then uh um and i had a weird kink in my neck just whatever a little neck issue and it made it it, so just made me go slowly on the net so it took me like a week to make and when i got it done i was like this is awesome i haven't actually seen anyone i mean i'm sure people have but i've never seen anyone actually make a paracord inner strand net and, and use it successfully so i was like well this is gonna be fun i'm gonna go put it out there and then uh um went out there and put it in and you know the first little while it was it wasn't immediately successful and so you're keeping these ice hole, holes open for the net which up there it was freezing at about an inch a day you know the ice was adding so it was a lot of work keeping ice holes open. And, uh, at one point I was like, man, I'm going to, this net's been here a week or so. I'm just going to move it to this other spot, which again is a lot of work and chopping two new holes through, you know, 18 inch ice or whatever. And went over there and chopped through, stuck the net under there. And then, you know, you're always trying to be a little pessimistic out there to not disappoint. (laughs) Probably not going to work. We'll see. And then, (laughs) I went out there one day and looked and I was like, Hey, where's my net? You know, and I kind of looked, chopped out the ice, looked under there and couldn't see my net. Cause this giant pike, he had swam into it and, uh, rolled up in it and kind of just really rolled the whole net up. And, uh, so then when I, as I was pulling it out, I was like, Oh, there's definitely a fish in there. And 
and you get out and see that tail and you see that holy crap this is a huge fat pike it was so exciting and so so gratifying after all that effort and work and it was like that that moment where i realized okay i'd gotten through that slow lull in food gathering and now i'm back on track and i start you know getting fish in again and hopefully growing the food cache rather than shrinking it and uh also it would it was kind of fun i had uh in, with the natives in siberia we had we would cut out little tin can shapes of fish and hang them in the net and so i did that on there and that pike struck right at one of those shiny spots and no kidding. so it was just cool a lot of stuff had worked out and and what a, yeah it was a really it was a really peak moment while i was out there on the show amongst others uh but yeah, it turns out it was also about the last day. So, <laughs> yeah, it seems like, you know, there's that old expression. It's a Spanish proverb that the belly rules the mind. And it yeah. seems like <laughs> the show has gained so much fanfare because people are like, well, number one, people are suffering and 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 the viewer likes watching someone else do something that just seems almost impossible. And then on top of that, it's like, okay, how do you gain control over your environment? How do you live with it? How, I mean, mother nature has a winning record. We'll never beat it, but how, but how do you, how do you, uh, how do you manage to get by? And you know, it seems like lately on that show, more and more people are going to improvised fishing than they are, um, you know, anything else. And, and, and it seems like lately more and more folks are, are embracing the hunter aspect you know the ones that try mm -hmm. to go on and just forage for for plants they realize wow we do need fat in our diet right. um oh yeah so speaking of fat it seems like lately the strategy for the like the winning formula on the show is mm -hmm. pack on as much weight as you can because that's mm -hmm. your emergency food supply and you're trying to avoid them pulling you for malnutrition so if you can look fatter longer you win did, mm -hmm. did you go in with that strategy? Did you go in adding weight on or? Well, no, I mean, I did put on as much weight as I could, but that's not my skill suit. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have a fast metabolism and I'm thin and I, uh, uh, but I, you know, I, of course any weight, I know how hard it is to get fat in the woods. So any you can take out as an advantage, but that advantage to me was, uh, that uh, was a losing battle for me. Everybody else out there had considerably more, or most everybody, considerably more body weight to lose. And so in some way, uh, that was a benefit to me because I knew there was no way I would win if it was a starving contest. And it, you know, it was funny going on Reddit and stuff when I found out I was going on the show and listening to people comment on what they thought strategies would be. And there was a pretty you know, pretty, pretty much people just had figured exactly that, that, Hey, you know what you do? You put on a ton of weight before the show. You don't burn any calories, sit it out. You know, it's almost impossible to gather that much food in the woods, given the situation. So don't try, just hibernate basically. And they had, there was all these math, you know, it, I figured out all the math on calories in and out and everything. <laughs> And I was reading that, but honestly, the fact that I've lived with the natives in a similar environment, I was like, man, I know it's possible to not just suffer through, but to actually be sustainable. But I also knew it was going to be like a major puzzle to unlock because you don't know what it's going to look like when you're out there and you don't know what avenue is going to be for you there. Um, and so you have to be really adaptable when you get out there. And 
but me knowing that I couldn't win by starving, that it might be a valid, valid option for some, for me, it absolutely wasn't. So I knew I had to be active, proactive and, um, make it happen, you know? So when I got out there, there was no time where I thought, you know, this activity could be productive, but it's also a lot of calories. I'm not going to do it. It's like, Oh, if it's going to potentially be productive, I'm going to do it. Including, yeah, I'm the most stark example of that was building that big fence to Mm -hmm. funnel all the moose (laughs) in a certain direction. And, uh, it's like, man, that's falling a lot of trees. It's a lot of calories to spend, but I was like, well, I'm not here to starve. So I'm going to make it happen. And, and sure enough that that strategy ended up paying off and but it was really an advantage knowing that it was possible because there was a lot of talk that it wasn't possible especially prior to season six you know it had been you know the other strategy had for the most part won on the show so (laughs) yeah what's interesting is when you watch the first season i mean it, it was a truly brand new show on the history channel mm-hmm. and you see people making mistakes that just they were naive they did not know but then by season mm-hmm. two you start seeing commonality in the gear that's carried like people right. all, like the gillnet reign supreme right. gillnet 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 you know mm-hmm. and then uh you know later on you see that everyone's carrying those massive silky saws you know and uh-huh. <laughs> and it seemed like there was like a like a must-have shopping list for that show you know i know that uh-huh. you're allowed a certain number of socks certain number of wool tops yeah uh, and so forth and so forth um and multiple pairs of gloves which i'm assuming get worn through with all that physical work that you're doing um right but one of the things i was curious about because i've had discussions with some folks um and and obviously i don't want to you know put you in a in a hard spot here um mm-hmm. with various like non-disclosure agreements you know i know there are certain mm-hmm. rules that people aren't aware of and one of my mm-hmm. associates uh who spoke to a gentleman who was on one of the seasons said he was scouting around and he was told over a megaphone go back to your area go back to your area like mm-hmm. like there's there's like an like a unmentioned zone that you are and are not allowed to operate in and then you mm-hmm. mentioned you mentioned the barbless hooks which people are like why do they keep losing these fish i'm like the hooks are barbless mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. like that's one way of stacking the drama like let's add in a way for these contestants to lose fish and watch people get upset um because any fisherman that was like yeah barbless hooks maybe you're doing it for sport fishing where you don't want to harm the fish right. but in survival, right. I would take a treble hook over a barbless <laughs> hook, you know? So were there were there any of those things that people should just be aware of that you don't mind sharing? Or is there stuff well, that there you're are, like, I for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that, I mean, I think the show's fair, you know, tries to make people aware at times that there are certain regulations that I was watching the last season, this last season, and this guy had a reindeer at 20 yards. And it's like, well, you know, you're not allowed to hunt reindeer. So you mm-hmm. let it walk. But, but, um, uh and so on my season actually it adjusted my strategy immediately because I've, I've my plan was to go out there and catch a lot of fish hopefully i knew we were on a fishy lake and make a big stinky pile of fish and bait bear in and try to get a bear um by various means that i have <laughs> but the uh but uh, the regulations didn't allow for the baiting, you know, baiting things, baiting traps. Baiting. So I was like, oh, OK, so I had to adjust your strategy. And um, so there's all there's little regulations. They kind of I actually think they try to get them as loose as possible because mm-hmm. I think they want people to have success out there. Actually, But but, you know, you're still dealing with fish and game commissions and oftentimes in Canada and tribal regulations and all this stuff. So 
they negotiate what they can and when they're done there still are a lot of regulations but uh the fewer that there are i think the better show it makes for us and i think they kind of agree so i think they try to get as few as possible but the fact is is you still have to go they're not people aren't gonna like relax game laws for a tv show (laughs) right 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 (laughs) when when you were watching the show and in preparation for the show was there anyone that you i won't say looked up to like a role model but was there anyone that you were like damn that guy that's what i'm doing like was there anyone that impressed you um let's see Uh, i mean there were people i definitely thought were really cool that were on the show and uh let me think uh Oh gosh. I mean, I guess I, I, I was usually thinking of it more as, you know, I was thinking of, okay, my buddy, you're in Siberia. What would that guy, you know, what would he do? I remember getting a hold of the, the nomads at some point they came into the village and called, you know, they still to this day keep in touch pretty well. And they called me and, uh, I was like, Hey, what would you guys do? Uh, you know, <laughs> and asking them questions or like, I'll get those rabbit snares out and blah, blah, blah. And so I was, but most of my, uh, the people I was looking up to in that situation were the, those people, I would say, I learned a lot from the folks in Siberia. What was, because there's a lot to sift through on what's practical in a, in an actual wilderness living situation and what's Mm -hmm. more kind of a hobby. And it's a little bit hard to figure out until you see it in practice and really see what separates the wheat from the chaff of it. And so having lived with them had kind of been a natural way to do that for me. <laughs> so I, I, but they were, they were the people that I was had in mind when I was trying to think of, okay, what solution would be the best to this or that problem? Mm-hmm. I've got just a couple more questions about the show and then I kind of want to go off oh, yeah, on a couple of tangents. Mm-hmm. So fun. the moment, the moment that that season that got the biggest rise out of me and, and all the guys that were watching it, the gals that were watching it, it would the, the one where I actually stood up in my chair and I said, no effing way <laughs> was, when, was when you, uh, you're like, yeah, there's something going after my, my food. Oh, it's a Wolverine. And you proceeded to spear the Wolverine to the ground with an arrow and then you finish uh-huh. it off with your hatchet. And I was like, did this guy just kill a Wolverine with his bare hands? So, all right. So, so kind of walk me through this because the Wolverine, it's part of the bear family, right? It's a weasel. It's the oh, biggest it's a we- weasel. Yeah, it's the, it's part yeah. of the like honey badger or whatever yeah. family, but he's the big guy. But there. nothing to screw with, right? Like nothing. No, no. To screw- so in that moment, are you just so like blind with rage or were you calculated like? Yeah, that's a good, no, that's a, it's a fun <laughs> contrast even for me to make because on the moose hunt, I remember it so vividly, you know, like I, every moment, the shot, everything is, is a very vivid memory for me. With the Wolverine, it was a lot more primal than that, but it was, it, <laughs> it, there was a lot of lead up. So I had gotten this moose and I had it and I was expecting for bear to come in kind of, and I was kind of hoping they would come in. And so I'd kind of put my meat in front of my shelter, sort of a bear cam at night. I could almost use it as a blind and this and that. And I just figured, oh, you know, if a bear comes, I'll hear it. And then I went out one morning and just saw meat missing and I had like had found a plastic jug and had filled it full of kidney fat and that thing was gone. And I was just like, oh, my goodness, like, what the heck? How did I not hear that? And then I looked around and saw the tracks and I was like, 
you know, a Wolverine's not something that immediately pops in your head as an option. Even living in Siberia, I rarely, you know, they were rare sightings, rare, rare animals. So up there, they're apparently a lot more common. And I <laughs> go out there and I was like, oh, that's a weird track. Oh, man, is that a Wolverine? And I was like, uh-oh, the Wolverine's here. And so uh, one thing about Wolverines is they're very, I mean, they're determined little critters. So once he found out that he was going to survive the winter by eating this moose. <laughs> he was going to, he was going to get to that moose any way possible. So, uh, I'd be out there scraping the hide and doing stuff. And then I'd just see him in the middle of the day, like dart by, try to grab something and run off and, you know, you try to grab your bow and too late and flung some shots at him here and there. But then, uh, uh, this one, I'd set a bunch of string with cans around my camp so that if anything came through, I could hear the clank and, one night I heard the clink and I went outside and I saw his little eyes shining from behind a bush and I drew back my bow, but I was like, man, I want to shoot through that bush. It's going to ricochet. And so I was waiting for him to come out from behind the bush and he must've just turned around and I couldn't see it was at night and he vanished on me. I was like, no, I should have shot him. Like, <laughs> so this had been building up for weeks. And then the next night, I, again, I hear the cans clink. And I was like, oh, man, so I ran back outside and I was looking in the direction of where I heard him. And sure enough, I saw him scurry behind the same bush. And that time I just didn't hesitate. I sent an arrow back through there and it fling, you know, ricocheted through there and pinned him. But I could see immediately like it hit him and he started flipping and rolling. But it, you could tell he was pinned to the ground and it had just gone through his his hip there and stuck into the ground. And I just grabbed my axe and ran over there <laughs> and I was going to. Again, it's all more primal and more of a blur, but I remember his teeth. Like when he saw me, he jumped at me, but the arrow held and I swung. But I remember that like ingrained in my head is that his snarling little teeth like jumping at me. Then he, then I swung and hit him and it disemboweled him and he like spun around like grabbing at his intestines and then I swung and swung <laughs> a bunch. And then, uh, I had that exact same thought after it was over. I was like, holy crap, did I just kill a Wolverine with an axe? Like, how did that just happen? But it, it, it was, uh, it really felt like it was me or him out there. I mean, he basically had claimed my meat and so had I. So it was, uh, it was I could tell it was going to yeah. go down. So I kind of knew it was going to go down, but I didn't know how. And it just all happened really fast. And, it was quite a moment, but I just mostly, I mean, I remember it, but I mostly have that one snapshot of his face, snarling face, jumping at me in my head. Damn. But, uh, I do regret, I kind of, I mean, I almost, I, it was all happening fast. I kind of wish I would have grabbed the camera cause I'd love to like <laughs> relive it. But I don't even know if they would have shown it. It was kind of violent, but it was, uh, it would have been fun to watch. Right. And, right there <laughs> oh my gosh so now the show the show carries on you kill the wolverine mm -hmm. you've got the moose uh producers show up and like usual you know they do like the medical check and they bring in mm -hmm. you know uh you know your spouse the aftermath um like obviously mm -hmm. you, you win the the half million dollar prize but the mm -hmm. aftermath let's talk about like what it's like when you get back to civilization because i know they do like the recap show where they talk about like the the craziest moments but Mm -hmm. from from your perspective like when you win that money and they bring you back to civilization here's three quick questions number one mm -hmm. what is the first thing that you could eat that you wanted to eat 
Number mm-hmm. two, how much freaking paperwork do they make you file for all the taxes <laughs> on that money? Right. And then number three, how damn hard was it to keep it a secret? <laughs> um, yeah. So what I get back and question one was uh, first thing that? that you ate. Oh, right. Uh, you know, what was interesting is that moose was so delicious from the first bite to the last that my, once I got it, I didn't have real strong cravings, but I did, I was thinking about these magic squares that my mom would make at Christmas. <laughs> so I was like, man, I gotta, you know, it's like coconut and chocolate and all this stuff. And I was uh-huh. like, oh, that'd be good. So I got back and I told her and she made a big batch, but man, I ate like a tiny bit and I was like, Ooh, that's too rich. <laughs> I can't even eat that. <laughs> it sounded better than it was. And then, uh, the, let's see what else that paperwork, there was a lot of paperwork. I mean, from the beginning to end, you got to do psychiatric tests and you got to do, uh, in, you know, all the types of NDAs and this and that. So there was a, a ton of paperwork, uh, not my forte, but, <laughs> but ended up getting through it. And then, uh, the, uh, wait, now I'm blanking. What was your third question? How difficult was it keeping it a secret? Oh, that, yeah, that was, that was difficult. And I think, uh, I'm not sure how good of it, at it I was. Like I, I, <laughs> people made assumptions, and <laughs> I could neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> you know, because mysteriously, people could kind of guess what I was doing. I think, and then mysteriously, my wife had to disappear in an emergency, and then we all show back up, and you know, it's just like, yeah, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> yeah, from from the from the health perspective, just curious. I mean. You hear these stories of these contestants who they suffer long term, like permanent health problems. Yeah. Did you experience anything like that? Was there anything where you're like, damn, I still don't have like I. Yeah. No, I didn't. I actually left the show at the same weight I am right now. I was like 100. I'm a light guy. I was like 168 pounds. And that's what I weigh now, basically. So um, I actually get lighter usually in the summer when I'm up in the mountains all summer. But the. uh yeah, so I came. I felt exactly the same. I didn't have any issues at all, but it is definitely a thing. Like, um, and had had it been in a in a spot where food was not available, like they did a desert season and da da da, and you're just all starving out there. Um, yeah, it, I don't know that it's it's not worth it for money or fame to damage your health long term. So, uh, <laughs> I definitely don't blame the people that that don't do that when they get on that show and they realize they're in a dead end. It's like people really have damaged their health long-term trying to, trying to really push it. And so it's easy to judge, but when you're out there and you're like, man, do I want a permanent con, you know, health consequences for maybe even coming in second place still? Like, I mm-hmm. don't think so. That's not something I would ever blame anyone for. Personally, for me, that was not my experience. And I, I felt, like I would came back. It just felt like another trip for, to Russia for me. Like I got back, I wanted to hang out with everybody. I didn't feel culture shock or anything. I was just like, this is great. Like, uh, dove right into those magic squares, but they were too rich. <laughs> no, I didn't have any, any health issues. So that's, that's nice. So I think a lot of that too, you know, a, a surprising amount of that I think comes from not only the starving, but also dehydration. You don't realize in those cold environments how dehydrated you get. And 
a lot of the people that suffer from cramps and all kinds of crazy stuff aren't it's actually dehydration also plays a big role so having known that i was able to avoid that too which is good because it's just so painful to swallow cold water when the air is so cold yeah you know you almost don't even think about it like if it's hot out you think about it and you drink and you stay hydrated when it's cold it kind of especially cold dry like in the north it kind of pulls your moisture out and you don't really notice and it is a pain to get water and you usually are gonna if you're gonna boil it or make tea so that it's not cold it's uh you just end up over time if you're there an extended period of time not quite consuming what your body needs and you end up being in a deficit so i was really good about always have you know i what happens is you go to sleep and then all you wake up and all your water's frozen and mm-hmm. so then it's a pain to stay hydrated so i would uh heat up rocks and put i'd found these tin cans on the shore you know and i'd just stack hot rocks around my can so that when i woke up in the night and i was a little thirsty i didn't ignore it i could actually just go over and i'd still have thawed water it was easy to drink you know little things like that i think made a big difference in the long run so you use the hot rocks as a as a heater to keep the water from freezing exactly that's yeah. smart and, it, and they didn't show that on the show did they yeah there's a lot of, a lot of those little things honestly i'd like you know go fishing every time if you saw on that season that the, the water would get really rough and it'd splash up on the rocks and i remember you mentioned rolling earlier i remember rolling talking about how he was on like danger shore because he could fall <laughs> or whatever's really slick every time i went i would take a can of ashes with me and just sprinkle them as i walked you know and because honestly it was like glass it's like that type of slick where it's like don't slip don't slip mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh yeah just little things like that i'd collect sand and ash and then have it so that when i went fishing i could just sprinkle my shoreline and fish without eating it you know little things like that man that sounds like a magazine article waiting to happen like 10 things that you didn't see jordan jonas doing on on a lot so so i promised that we wouldn't ask all questions about the show um but i do have to ask about something because uh you know i was big fan of of this type of reality genre you know given what i do Mm -hmm. here at the company and we've got a guy coming out to do a guest instructor series by the time this podcast comes out he'll probably already have done it but jason smith Uh of of hobo forge um oh yeah which he was on a show i believe with your brother or your brother was on a different episode of yeah they were on a different episode but it was the same show yeah i think he was on alone the beast Mm -hmm. yeah do you and your brother ever fight over who uh had a tougher (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh I, I i don't want to because he's well you know he's, he's he's got like his purple belt and jiu-jitsu and stuff he outpaced me on that so <laughs> <laughs> we'll call it good for now gotcha. <laughs> no but he comes out a lot and he'll help me teach my you know courses in the summer he just left a couple days ago so he was up here the last couple weeks and yeah awesome it's awesome having him out here yeah, because you originally grew up in Virginia, right? No, we grew up in North Idaho. North I, Idaho, uh, okay. And then I rode, you know, my brother had ended up somehow, long story, riding freight trains for seven or eight years. He basically just rode the country and, you know, rode the rails basically as a traveler. And then he invited me at one point to go with him. And so I took a summer and rode trains with him. And we had ended up in Virginia just because it was a good place to do temporary work. And we ended oh, up in okay. this crappy kind of run downtown where we could get a house for free if we promised to re- you know renovate it kind of like detroit and and so it 
we ended up staying there and and for a while and so that's where i was based out of when the show happened i see okay so you were originally idaho Mm -hmm. and now you're colorado right Montana, Montana. Yeah. Jesus, I, right on the border of Idaho. Yeah, man, I am missing the mark with all these different states where you're from, oh, and where you're living, and all that. <laughs> all good states. Um, and now you've transitioned into teaching your own uh, courses, and you know I've been right. following. I've been following uh, on social media what you've been doing, and it seems like you're doing a lot cool. of these, like, uh, like almost like treks or wilderness experiences. Yeah. Can you c- kind of talk about exactly. that? Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, when the show ended, I thought, well, I had kind of learned a lot of these skills just living with natives and, you know, bow hunting and all that. And I, uh, when I got only when I got on the show, did I realize how many people were in the survival training world and that there was a demand for that. And, and after the show ended, my brother and I were just like, Hey, we should, you know, maybe we should try running some courses. And so, we did, and I got to say, it was like sh- shocking how awesome it was. Honestly, <laughs> mm-hmm. it was so necessary for people, and and so beneficial that it that it quickly became a lot more than just an idea. You know, it was like more than a business idea. I was like, well, this is, I really see the purpose behind it, and so I've continued to do that. So yeah, we run. I'd say the survival skills and such are the framework, but. I really try to provide like a real wilderness outdoor experience, try to do something that I don't see other people offering and really push people in the wilderness and have really cool experience, help them to see that, um, you know, what our country has to offer has such amazing land and public land and being able to take advantage of that is, it can really add to your quality of life. So <laughs> just showing that to people is, a big part of what I do and sharing in that and the skills at the same time. It's just, but it's been a, it's been a blast. I love it. And we recently actually just bought an outfitter. So now we can, uh, kind of run our own courses, our own way and, and have the freedom to be really creative in what we do. And so what do you think, exciting. what do you think the reason is people go to your courses? Like what, like what's a common, uh, explanation of what gets people to you? Mm, uh, it's been it's such, it's such a diverse crowd, which is one of the things that I like about it a lot. It'll have people from, uh, you know, New York, California, and everywhere in between, all different political ideologies mm-hmm. and everything else. And you get out in the woods, and you realize we're all people, and we all get along, and we're all uh, kind of in this together. And it's it's great. I think a lot of people come we've leaned you know more towards like really just wanting to have a an adventure in the woods and having someone that can help facilitate that and and make that the best that it can be uh a lot of people you know we always ask people when they get out there so what you know what do you want to do you know i'm pretty flexible on our itinerary so what are the things you want to learn what do you want to leave here knowing that you don't know now probably half the people are just there and just want to have a really cool adventure and build memories. And then half the people are like, Oh, I want to get better at fishing or making primitive this or that or traps. Or I'm really into, <laughs> and so I kind of tailor each and I'd say it's, it's about half that are into the skills and half that are just honestly just want to have a adventure and unplug and, and see what all that has to offer, which is, 
you know, quite a bit. So it's definitely a mixed bag and it's kind of probably intentionally so because I'm a little vague on exactly what's happening out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. When, when I used to work at the, live, uh... you know, having lived with the natives and mm-hmm. stuff, it was one of the things I really appreciated about actual living in the wilderness is the, you don't really have the really strict schedule that mm-hmm. so much of us, are, many of us are accustomed to now. It's, it really is an open flow to life. Same on alone, same it's but you wake up and you have certain needs that need to be met and any way of you can imagine of getting there. So it's very kind of a open feeling to it. And I like to try to share that with people when they're there because it is a hard thing to access in the modern world. It's a, but it's how much so many of us lived for so, you know, for thousands of years that, uh, yeah, I think it's important to get a glimpse of what that mode of life is like. It's tricky. It's tricky to capture that. It's tricky to capture that in just a short window, right? Like if a person wants to come for like a day class, it's like, look, I can give you a 30,000 foot view or a wave top view. Yeah. Yeah. Go mm -hmm. ahead. No, go ahead. That that is honestly at the moment. That's why you typically run longer classes of five, six days type thing, because it's like, if you need a while to tap into that mindset and, and get the most out of that you can do shorter classes are excellent for learning skills and doing all that but to to get that uh to kind of get a glimpse of that mindset it does take a little more time you're right yeah recently i was out in utah you know because i'm here in north carolina at our uh uh-huh. headquarters here but i went uh-huh. back out to utah and i was living out there for two years before i made the move out east um and when I was there, they're like, oh yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a car that you can drive. Right. Like I'm using one of the company cars and they're like, where do you want to uh-huh. stay? And I was like the mountains. And they're like, no, yeah. no, no. Like really where I'm like, I'm going back up into the mountains and I'll be there from Tuesday through the following Monday. <laughs> and they're like, wait a minute. You know, these are like my, my coworkers are like, you're actually doing that. I'm like, yeah, like I enjoy the woods and an overnight is fun, right? Like I get it. Overnights are, are a good way to escape, but you are spot yeah. on when you say like you get into a rhythm with the environment where even the camp starts to look different, where you can tell where your like regular walking trails are. You yeah, can, you can tell like, OK, this is where I've been processing wood and you can tell like, OK, yeah. I've got a, an established area for like prepping food and I've got an established area for just like relaxing, watching the views like you get into this rhythm. But I think the tricky part now, and I'm sure you're dealing with this too, is folks say, well, I want that, but I don't have five or six days or whatever to, to experience that. Cause it's five mm-hmm. or six days plus a day on the front day on the end. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, by doing that, you kind of make your net speaking of nets from earlier, you make your net <laughs> a certain gauge and you're only going to capture certain size fish instead of right. everyone. So like, are you, are, I'm assuming you're doing these longer experiences, but you're also doing some like, uh, like, uh, appearances and are you doing any like yeah, weekend I do courses? a lot of appearances and yep. Yeah, and, and we've done, you know, you know, and I do like just overnight things with people. I actually did a, a trip down in Texas last year that was just an overnight and, uh, you know, and it wasn't on my territory. So I just went down to this unfamiliar place and did it. And honestly, it was also really awesome. Um, but it is shorter. So you're, you are limited by that, but you can still get it across. I, I do enjoy, since I guess I have the flexibility, flexibility and at the moment still, you know, the demand of folks that want to come, I, I like 
facilitating the longer ones, but I've definitely done, you know, quite a few shorter ones. I just feel in a way you just, uh, it puts the pressure on a little more mm. because you, <laughs> you gotta, nature's not going to teach some of the lessons that <laughs> you, you get naturally taught over the course of a week. You know, you have to try to facilitate it a little more in a shorter window of time. So, uh, but it's totally doable and, and, uh, and fun. I enjoy it. It just depends, you know, and if, if that's what the people have, I'm all for it. If you only have a day, but you want to, all you want to do is, you know, build fires and <laughs> then let's do that because it, it's just a window and it's in a move in the right direction. So, yeah, mm-hmm. you mentioned that it, uh, Texas isn't your area and it's clear when you watch that show and when you see what you do and like what you post up on social media, it seems like Northern forest is your baby. Um, is there an environment, yeah. is there an environment where you're like, Oh hell no, not going there. <laughs> um, you know, I did live in Virginia for a lot of years uh-huh. and I've got that one down pretty well, but, uh, 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 and then in, in certain places it gets easier if you're in the tropics, you know, there's I've spent some time there and it's kind of easy living, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd be really wet you know those wet wet temperate rainforests seattle and stuff that can mm. be tough because you always being wet is tough um and you know deserts are fairly limited in their food resources but, but depending on where you're at so you can get a fire built really easily but <laughs> you can't, yeah. you can't uh, cook anything <laughs> so, so i mean there's definitely environments that I do better in, you know, that I think are more conducive to thriving. And I really, I really think that the whole Northern ecosystem is particularly suited to that, at least with my skill set. So yeah, yeah, that's my favorite, but, uh, you can make a go of it in most places, I believe, but there are some that have some big disadvantages <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, what I want to do is I just want to do some rapid fire questions before we, we kind of sign off of this one, just kind of, you know, touch a a lot of different topics. So Mm -hmm. just respond as quickly as you can, but as thoroughly as you can. And we'll just get through a bunch of things that people might be wondering about you. So I don't know if you're game for this or not, but I have a funny feeling you are. All right. So what do you have in your pockets right now? Oh, I got a Leatherman, my wallet and, and that's it right now. (laughs) <laughs> All right. What is your daily driver? Uh, 2001 Nissan Frontier. Okay. What is your it's an upgrade? <laughs> well, you know, it just it says something about your character that you're still sticking to it. Like you're you're getting the most out of it, and that truck will, will last you a long time. Um, what's on your nightstand? Like, what are you reading? Oh, uh, I've, I've been you know I listen to a lot of audiobooks throughout the day. Mm-hmm. I've been re- listening to some one called the Inca apocalypse recently, which is, uh, interesting. I am fascinated by those pre Columbian cultures, you know, Yeah, <laughs> pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And all history. I typically, I read a lot of history. I've loved it reading, you know, still Gulag Archipelago has been an influential book and a lot of history. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like where you were living, uh, with the Evenki, like there's no doubt that history is is intertwined with the way that they live. Like they describe mm-hmm. things, you know, they they explain things 
um, based on on their history in it's kind of fun. Practices. They'd always talk, you know, they'd talk about, oh yeah, we're the only people the Mongols didn't defeat, you know, we just <laughs> yeah. moved farther north and they couldn't keep up with it, you know. <laughs> yep. So they're in touch with their history too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, where is a bucket list destination that you'd like to travel to? Uh, I'd like to go to Armenia. It's like I got you know, kind of family history in that mm-hmm. uh, region. It'd be cool to get my family's actually from northwestern Iran, but that's not really an option to go to. But I feel uh, a brotherhood with the Armenians over there. So that'd be fun to go to. And I'd like to go to the country of Georgia also and Peru. Those would be the three places I find interesting. You know, I, I wish more people knew about you than that other famous Armenian, Kim Kardashian. <laughs> <That's a> shame, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. The Kardashians are all Armenian. Right. Uh, I'm just yep. thinking, I'm thinking back to like the Chappelle show when they had the, the race draft and it's like the Armenians would like to disown the Kardashians and take Jordan Jonas. Um, totally. Yeah. You, you win some, you lose some. Oh, for sure. One in every family. <laughs> for sure, man. Um, so last question, if there's a quote that you live by, what quote is that? Like what, what are the words that kind of define who you are? Um, yeah, on my website, I wrote, uh, or, you know, uh, ingenuity, adaptability, resilience, because there, if I were to unpack those, you know, I can go on forever, but there's a lot wrapped in those words. If I, you know, think of resilience in particular, you know, you go, you think of my whole family history and where they come from and what they went through and the perspective that that puts me in and, uh, the, you know, the adaptability is being the way I kind of focus on life, not only in the woods, but in everyday life, the ingenuity is a big part of, you know, mm-hmm. those, I think those, I could, I'm not going to bore you with going on with all of them, but I think that if I were to expound on those words, I could explain why, uh, why I chose those words. There's a kind of a lot packed in there. Gratitude is something I try to be really conscious of too so if i those four words would be uh would be a play a key role in who i am i think understood <laughs> so i had to break it down yeah so fortunately go ahead where where can people find you where can people follow you how can they get in touch with you how can they they embrace what you do and and kind of follow your lead yeah thanks i uh I have a website that's jordanjonas.com and there's you can sign up for an email list there and i only send out a couple a year i don't spam you just let people know when i you know i've recently come out with a custom axe and i've got a when my course schedule comes out like things like that i'll i'll let people know but the uh uh instagram's probably where most people follow me it's at hobo jordo it's got a you know a following there and that's where I let people also know about when the course schedules come out. And, uh, those are probably the two best places. So either email via my website or Instagram, I have a YouTube page that I sometimes throw stuff up on, but I haven't found the time to produce videos. So it's fairly low quality, (laughs) but it's sometimes some good information. You mentioned gratitude. Go Go ahead. ahead. That's also hobo Jordo. If you search that, you'll find my, you just said gratitude. So before we sign off, is there anyone that you want to thank or recognize as, as part of your journey or, you know, give some credit to? 
Gosh, there's so many people. I, um, my thoughts, I guess, would go for whatever reason. You asked the question, and it went to my dad and my brother. You know, the one that was on alone. Both of them played a huge role in helping me went go come to where I have. But the list could just go on and on. Uh, Super thankful for you know where I'm at, and it's not just me that's done it. It's the whole. You know, a lot of people have been involved in my journey and helped me to be where I am. My wife is facilitate basically everything I do. So, uh, yeah, lots of people. <laughs> Outstanding. Man. Yeah. Outstanding. Well, hang on after we get off. I want to ask you a couple more things, but, uh, dude, yeah. I, I really, really can't thank you enough for being on. And I, I truly mean it. I'm not just blowing smoke up your butt, uh, that I was seriously impressed. And of all the That's contestants cool, yeah. of all the contestants that have been on there, like just from your, how humble you were to how patient and how calculating I, I was like, this is the gold standard. Like this is the guy. So I, I really appreciate the time that we've spent talking and, and I hope that folks head over and have these experiences with you in the great outdoors and, and rewatch, man. Yeah. Yeah. And rewatch I, the show. I appreciate it. And that you've built quite the, you know, you're involved. I don't know. What's your role in the whole field craft? So over at Fieldcraft uh, here, I'm the the director of survival training. So I pretty much build the curriculum. I line out instructors. Like I know you mentioned you don't like the Pacific Northwest. So I got an instructor out there who's teaching in September, which if you want to swing by there and learn from him, you, you're you my guest of honor. Um, uh, thanks. Yeah, Where is you that know, at? Sorry, I didn't gr- hear. Yeah, Granite, Granite Falls, Washington. Annual rainfall, 40, oh, inches, cool. or 40 inches of rain a year. Um, over on Greg, <laughs> yeah, Greg Anderson's property. So I, I pretty much cover the, the medical courses, the survival classes, the land navigation courses. You know, when I joined the company, I joined it as I'm teaching fieldcraft skills, right? And I've always mm-hmm. been a fan of of showing, letting the skills be the star. I want yeah. students to walk away with skills, not like, hey, I just learned from this guy who has a book. Like, I want the student to take photos of what they did. You know, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that's my like it's my role. Fun to be able to empower people with the ability to. That's what I try to do too. Is like hopefully when you, they leave this course, they feel like they can like point at a spot on Google Maps and go there. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not have the fear. That's awesome. That's what it's but all yeah, about. That's a, seems like a pretty happening company at the moment. That's a good yeah. one to be a part of. <laughs> yeah, and and like I said, it's uh it's very rewarding. It's, it's something that I enjoy doing and I'm going to continue doing it as long as I have air in my lungs. Cause as you mentioned, <laughs> it's cool watching people feel empowered and not just saying that they're empowered, but seeing them demonstrate the skills that they've learned and you knowing as an instructor that they truly are, you know, like yeah. that to me yeah. is the drug, you know, just like that giant fish that you caught. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. No, it's awesome. And it's a, it's a cool field to kind of have, wandered into you know I, I was just doing construction before the show and it's like man this is way better yeah for certain <laughs> so uh so so hang on just for a bit but uh guys for everyone else thank you so much for listening this is kevin estella of fieldcraft survival Till next time